three, two, one. Hit it. What? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a reason. Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with some of these people. Put down um, on your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, would you rather? All right, trust me. Take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. This week, I'm joined by author, founder, and executive chairman of ClassPass, Pyle Kadakia, to explore issues including the importance of not compartmentalizing your identities and being able to be your full self at work, how someone stuck at a dead-end job might be able to discover what lights them up, how Pyle turned an idea formulated on a red-eye flight into a billion-dollar business, and finally, how you can stand out in a sea of millions of LinkedIn requests and networking emails to find a mentor and grow your network. All that and so much more on another episode of Nervous Habits. What's going on, guys? I hope that everyone is having an incredible start to 2022 and that you've all been sticking to your New Year's resolutions, right? Um, the one-month mark is when people kind of <laughs> people start to uh, you know, regress back into their old habits. Um, but I think if you can, if the calendar switches to February 1st and you're still waking up at 7 a.m. Uh, to hit the gym or you're still eating salads two or three days a week, you're still minimizing your screen time, then you'll be all set. I was actually looking at Statista uh, published the, uh, tw- the most common 2021 resolution. So this was last year. So the most common resolutions for people last year, no surprise, doing more exercise or improving fitness is number one. Losing weight is two, and obviously they're kind of related. Saving money is three, improving diet is four, and then pursuing career ambition is five, which we'll talk a lot about in this episode. More time with family, six, taking up a new hobby, seven, spending less time on social media, eight, giving up smoking, nine, and then the rest is very like niche, decorating or renovating home, volunteering or doing more charity work, cutting down on drinking. Uh, things like that. You know, it'd be nice for me. It'd be nice if I could say like, oh, my New Year's resolution is to stop biting my nails. But I like I've talked about this so much on the pod before. If, if you know, longtime listeners will know, like I've struggled with with nail biting literally like uh, 15 years, um, seem to have tried everything. And uh, I don't know, I, I think at some point in my life, I should undergo like some some form of like hypnosis or something because it's um, yeah, I, I want my New Year's resolutions to be pragmatic. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to like say that I, I want to, you know, cut back on that and then not actually follow through. And I think I mentioned either on the last bonus episode or maybe it was the episode I did with uh, the orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Hanscom. But I think my biggest resolution for the new year um, is just to treat myself better. You know, like I, I'm someone who, and I bet a lot of listeners, you know, you can relate to this. I'm someone who, like, I love doing nice things for other people. I love treating my uh, my friends or my loved ones to, like, a nice dinner or getting clothes or, you know, gifts for, for my sisters. And, um, you know, I, but a lot of times I'm hesitant to spend that kind of money getting things for myself, you know. Um, and... I think I think it was around the holidays when uh, I think I, I talked to my sister Holly about it, and she was like, "You know, Ricky, you have to you have to treat yourself once in a while. You know, like you, if, if there's something that you want that would make your life happier, don't wait around for someone else to get it for you, or don't like push it to the bottom of your to do list. Like, you know, go and and do something nice for yourself, right? Um, I think life life is so short, and uh, so I want to try to I want to try to be better to myself, and 
also to just live you know this is this is going to sound cliche so skip ahead 20 seconds if you want to if you want to breeze past that but like just be more present oriented like don't like at the end of every night when i go to bed i'm like all right what do i have to do tomorrow i gotta do this this and this okay okay i didn't do enough for this i need to like make sure this is good and i i think that mode of of thinking um if you're always like like working towards tomorrow you never get to enjoy today so i don't know like like i think those are those biggest things and obviously much like the you know 50 percent of america that i mentioned before i really need to get back into fitness I sort of lost my way a little bit. Um, really busy in like the fall and, and the winter with school. I'm going to continue to be busy um, when I prepare for the bar and, and eventually when I start my job. But I need to but I need to make sure I'm prioritizing my physical health, um, which is so funny because in a few minutes you'll hear that my guest this week is actually one of the most influential fitness entrepreneurs in the world. Um, so that <laughs> it's so it's kind of so it is kind of serendipitous that we're I'm having a conversation with with. Pyle, uh, Pyle Kadakia, who I'll introduce in a few minutes um, as I'm talking about news resolutions and getting into fitness and all that. But anyway, what, what else is new with me? I'm, I've just been feeling nostalgic. You know, I, I, I think I've mentioned this on the last couple podcast episodes, just thinking back to what my life was like in New York when I lived there um, before law school and what I'll be returning to in four or five months. I actually asked one of my best friends lives in New York, and I asked him, I said, do you think that New York – that the New York that I left in 2019 is going to be the same New York I'm coming back to in 2022. And unsurprisingly, he was like, he was like, no, he was like, I think that the pandemic kind of um, stifled the city a little bit. And he just said there was less, there's just, there's less going on. There's, there's, you know, fewer places to go. There's fewer people out. So I don't know. I mean, I mean, it remains to be seen if it's going to be like that moving forward or like, you know, with this whole Omicron situation and, but yeah, so I've been thinking about that and thinking back to, you know, thinking back on my law school experience and all that's happened over the last two or three years and how I've grown. And and then, like, from a career perspective, who even knows if law is going to be the be-all, end-all for me in my career? You know, like, I might practice law for a few years and figure out that this isn't what I want to do. This isn't what lights me up. You know, Pyle and I talk about, like, finding our calling and... um and maybe just being an advocate isn't my calling. Uh, and if that's the case, unfortunately for me, I'm going to have to stick around for a few more years to pay down debt and all that good stuff. But it does sort of raise an interesting question, right? Like whose life are we living? To the person listening at this moment, are you happy at your job? Does it light you up? Do you feel like you're able to be your, your whole natural self with your coworkers? And if not, if you feel like you're you're putting on um, – you feel like you're you're concealing your identity, or you're compartmentalizing, or you're not being your your you know truest and most natural self. Why are you still there? And so this episode is all about like taking stock of where you're at in your career. And if you're not happy there, you can forge your own path. And that's exactly what my guest Pyle Kadakia did. Um, so you might have heard of her. She's the founder and executive chairman of ClassPass. ClassPass is a monthly membership program. A lot of you guys might have the app in your phone. And it provides people of all fitness levels access to the best boutique fitness classes, gyms, and wellness experiences across the U.S. and abroad. Since its launch in 2013, ClassPass has facilitated almost 100 million reservations across 22,000 partner studios in over 20 countries. Pyle is also the founder and artistic director of the Sa Dance Company. It was founded in 2009 with the mission to increase awareness of Indian dance in the mainstream and serve as a platform for expressing Indian American identity through movement. 
Pile has appeared in most major news outlets, has been listed as one of Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People, and was named to Fortune's 40 Under 40 list. Before founding ClassPass, Pile worked at Bain & Company and at Warner Music Group, and she just released her book, Life Pass, Drop Your Limits, Rise to Your Potential, a groundbreaking approach to goal setting. So this episode is all about Pyle's journey and how she exited the, the grind of the corporate world to found her own company, which is now a unicorn, meaning it's, it's now valued at over a billion dollars. Um, so we're going to you know, hear about her experience, um, you know, not having been happy at her job and, and uh, wanting to, to create her own company and sort of for you guys listening to leave you with some questions and, and reflections on like whether or not you can see yourself doing the same thing. And then as usual, after the episode, I'm going to do my, my uh, sort of you know, debrief and share my thoughts and actually talk about my personal career journey uh, back in 2017, leaving my job a couple of years ago and, and, and all that fun stuff. But before we get there, I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. Um, Pyle was so much fun to talk to and I learned a lot, uh, not just from, from chatting with her, but also from reading her book. And I'll talk to you more about that after the episode. But without further ado, my conversation with Pyle Kadakia. Pyle Kadakia, welcome to Nervous Habits. Thanks for having me, Ricky. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, before we get into your, your background and, and how you built ClassPass, I'm curious, when was the last time that as a consumer, you used uh, ClassPass on your phone? Uh, last week. <laughs> last week. So you're yeah, saying- and I opened it this morning to book another class <laughs> for tomorrow. So I'm an avid user. <laughs> That's amazing. It's always great when, when founders and, and CEOs use, use their products. Um, so I want to kind of, for listeners that aren't familiar with you, talk through your background and, and how you got to be um, the founder of, of ClassPass. You started out working at uh, a prestigious man- management consultant firm, um, Bain, Bain & Company. Uh, and then after that, you found yourself at kind of a crossroads. So can you tell listeners why you eventually decided to, to walk away from that position? Yeah. So, um, you know, after I graduated from MIT, I went and worked at Bain, which was, you know, like you said, a top consulting firm, um, sort of the path that I was expected to do that, you know, my parents who are, um, you know, immigrants of India who came here in the seventies, obviously expected their kids to go and have a good education and a good career. So I was checking off all the boxes, uh, but my true passion in life has really always been dance. And, you know, I started dancing when I was three years old and felt this really true and deep connection to it. And I was working at Bain and I was dancing on the side And it just wasn't working. You know, I feel like I wasn't doing my best at work. And at the same time, I was in conflict with like being able to go to rehearsals or performances. And I didn't feel like I was being pulled to either side of me. I didn't know really what to do at the time. And so the first sort of like big decision I made in my life was to leave consulting because consulting is a very rigorous job, right? Where you have to travel, um, it's client services. And so I decided to take a job in the music industry. So I, I went and moved over to, you know, corporate America to sort of have a bit more of a predictable schedule. So I sort of worked like the nine to five, which made it at least easier for me to book the hours of like five to 10 on most days to, so I could dance and rehearse and do all the things that I loved. And during that time, I actually built my first company, which was my dance company. Um, and I started getting girls together and sort of started getting people to um, perform and dance and putting on shows around the city. 
which sort of for me, I think became this beautiful time in my life where I learned I was a leader. I learned I was an entrepreneur, even though it was in a small way, it was nowhere obviously at the caliber of what ClassPass was. But I think we sometimes forget that we need to kind of go back to these small things and to start somewhere. And for me, it started in dance and putting on shows in the middle of New York City that gave me this unbelievable confidence to sort of take the next big leap in my life, which was starting the company. So that's incredible. And I think, I, I think Pyle, in, in a lot of ways, you were fortunate because you knew from the beginning that your passion was dance. I think for a lot of people listening, they might sort of be, be in a position where they're at a dead end job or they're working day to day, but they don't really know what lights them up. So for, for folks who, who are listening, who don't know what their calling is, do you have any advice for how they might be able to discover what that might be? Absolutely. And I think, you know, this is a question I get asked so many times and honestly, is also, I think, one of the reasons I started ClassPass because I felt a little guilty for the fact that I knew what that was so young. And I felt like I had met so many people older in my life who didn't sort of live their day to day with that same sort of like enlightenment and passion and calling. And to me, like ClassPass was a part of giving them a way to try something new. And I think, I know it's like easier said than done, but simply trying something new, right? And that doesn't necessarily always mean an activity. It means changing the people you're around, right? Changing the way you maybe walk to work. You know, it's little small things that can inspire a whole new part of who you are. I think we forget how much the people we're around influence our minds and influence that, you know, our future. And sometimes you need to change who you are. You know, for me, I had to go to San Francisco to sort of get the impetus and the idea of the fact that I could even be an entrepreneur. I would have never felt that in New York City because at the time, all my friends were in banking and in consulting. And I didn't even understand that as a path to my life. And so sometimes taking a trip, sometimes going on um, a vacation, trying a new class, right? Going around, being around new people is a really big part of it. The other thing I would say is it's also about tuning inwards. I think a lot of times people think that they're, calling and their passion is somewhere outside, but it's already inside you. It's really actually about shutting off the noise and hearing it. And I think, you know, I did get lucky where I found that when I was, you know, three, three years old and I was dancing and I felt this connection to something that really propelled me forward. But I think for a lot of people, it's about listening into that deeper feeling versus thinking that someone's going to give it to you. It is not something your parents are telling you to be good at, right? Or your boss is telling you to be to be good at. And by the way, you might be really great at certain skills, but it might not be fulfilling. And that is really the difference about what that calling really is, is it's something that you do and you love, but it's also in service of other people, right? It's the impact portion of what that is that gives you that sense of fulfillment, right? So for me, while it was dance, it wasn't me just dancing for myself. It was the fact that I conveyed something to other people. And I think of ClassPass in the same way. I feel like I was able to give hours to people in their life to pursue things that they would have never done. And I think that's really when you feel like you're in the most sync with your calling is when you know it's in service of other people. Oh, I mean, absolutely. There's a lot to unpack there. I think uh, so, sort of towards the beginning of your response, you talked about not looking at what your friends are doing and, and forging your own path. In the book, one of the themes that I got out of it, which I connected with a lot, 
is asking yourself the question of whose life you're living and mm -hmm. sort of not letting other people's expectations drive your behavior, particularly you mentioned your parents. So I'm curious, uh, how, how, do you, how did your parents, um, your relationship with your parents kind of impact the choices that you made both when you were in the corporate world and when you were you know, sort of mulling over making the leap to starting your own company? I mean, they still influence my life, right? I don't think it ever stops at some point, but I think the most important thing that I have learned um, is, first of all, understanding where their expectations come from, right? So my parents lived a very different life than I did growing up in India, right? Their, their sense of success and accomplishment is just different than what I'm able to now achieve with the education I've had, right? And I think part of this was just understanding that their expectations are coming from a place of love, and understanding that, okay, they're, what they want for me is actually the same thing I want for myself, right? Versus feeling like, oh, I, I'm going to shut them out and keep saying no to them, right? And it took me a little bit to understand that. I think another big thing I did in my life and I talk a lot about is I set boundaries. So especially on triggering subjects. For me, it happened to be like the idea of getting married. I think for other people, it could be career path, hobbies that they want to pursue. Um, and sometimes when people are, keeping you away from something you love in your life or being able to sort of keep your mental sanity. I think you have to learn to just be able to say, I don't want to talk about this right now. I love you, but like either let's talk about something else or I'm going to go. Mm -hmm. And that is completely okay. Because what is the point about spiraling for the next hour, having a negative thought in your mind, right. About your life or whatever you might be doing. And I think, you know, over time I have learned to set expectations for my own life. And that is the number one thing, right? So outside of what everyone else thinks of you, I think when you are very clear about what you want, it is so much easier to go forward, to say yes. Mm -hmm. And the no's go away, right? Then the negativity, the guilt, the obligations, you don't have time for it. So to me, like my best way of being able to never kind of feel guilty is because I have so much to say yes to. Like I can't even get through the list of the things that I so want to do. So right. I do not have time to feel guilty about the things that, you know, aren't even on my radar to do. And I think, you know, I had to really build that backbone. I think as a, as a woman, as an, you know, an Indian woman, I think I really had to fight hard to protect my time, mm -hmm. to protect my mind. And, you know, that is such a big part of, I think the reason I am where I am is I just didn't, really want to chart anyone else's journey. I learned to listen to my own priorities, self-reflect, which is sometimes the hardest thing for so many of us to do yeah. and then say yes and not look back. You know, it's interesting. I really appreciate the point about setting boundaries. And I liked in the book that you said that whenever you were in a position where your mom would, would sort of ask what's going on, have you met someone yet? You should be like, all right, all right mom, like I'm, I'm going to head off the phone. I think it's important to kind of um, set that, that boundary for yourself and for others. And I also think in terms of, uh, what's applicable to your career, setting boundaries for exposure for like what you're seeing other people are doing, because I think there's so much pressure and we'll talk about in the corporate world specifically later on, there's so much pressure to conform to what other people are doing. So maybe for, for people listening, um, making sure that you're not spending too much time perusing LinkedIn or Facebook to see what, you know, what promotions your friends have gotten or what they're doing in their careers. And as, as Pyle, as you just said, self-reflecting on, on your own career and your own journey. Yeah. I think when you, I hate saying this, but like when you are in love with your own life, you kind of stop caring about what other people are in a way doing. You don't have time for it because you're too busy living your own life. So make your life so fulfilling that while you of course can be happy for other people and 
all of that. You're not looking at them to be like, because I don't have enough, right? You have to learn to fill your own cup. And like I said, that comes from, you know, doing the things that you love, right? And you might be at a job that you might not like. And I, I talk a lot about this in the book too, is what are you extracting from that, right? So I may have had jobs that, you know, I didn't love per se, because I wanted to dance, but I got a lot out of them, whether it was the network I got from them, you know, the, the understanding of industries. And I think it's important to know what that is, be proud of that, but also set a plan for the future, right? I think what pe- a lot of the times what happens is you don't know how to set that plan forward, whether it's financial, right? And we, I go into a lot of that is, you know, I never want money to stand in the way of someone. I mean, I literally, my parents came here with nothing. Mm-hmm. And so to be at the place I am today, I know it came from like prioritizing, budgeting, and creating a plan forward to achieve my dreams. And I think we sometimes figure that, okay, I'll never be able to do it. So we don't get started, but like a two-year plan of being able to pursue your dreams is better than having no plan and never being able to do it. And I think that's so much of what we have to do is sometimes these constraints, whether it's a job you don't like any of it is how do you, how do you use that to strategize your life in the way that leads you to where you want versus sort of being reactive to the life that you're in? I totally agree. And I think also taking kind of stock of what's holding you back, you talk a lot about fear, right? Like when you were in the corporate world, you had a fear of, of sort of um, letting that go and, and starting on your own. And something I really enjoyed reading, and, and if you don't mind, I want to share this quote with listeners, is you said that when you left your job at Bain um, uh, and, and wanted to sort of forge your own path, create a new company, you wrote, many of my colleagues offered to help in any way they could. No one thought this was a bad idea. On the contrary, many people actually had looks of admiration on their faces, almost as if they wished they could leave and work on something they loved. So that's kind of a powerful reminder that um, other people might have even been a little bit envious of of you for for going your own way. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I always remember that moment so clearly because I was so scared. I mean, quitting your job when you're in your 20s and not knowing what you're going to be doing is, is scary. And I, I always remember all those conversations and the fact that people were literally like, wow, I really wish I could do the same thing that you're doing. And that's when I was like, whoa, like this is the way to live life. And absolutely. Like, I think, um, I hope on no one, like, I don't want anyone to end up like in their forties, fifties and having that feeling. I would want them to have done it early as well. Rip the bandaid early, obviously with having a plan, which is a big part of it, um, but rip it, you know, because you put a plan together and whether it's skills, money, time, any of it, you put a plan together that'll enable you to take that leap. Absolutely. And and one of the issues I think people grapple with in, and you talk about in the book about making sacrifices in your career, about how being successful means missing weddings, missing family time, birthdays. Um, And I think people in corporate America they they're sort of in this in this period where they don't know how to say no. And if they're faced with having to take time off, they feel this sense of guilt or shame. I mean, speaking to the legal profession specifically that I'm a part of, there's almost sort of a pride in working 60 to 70 hour weeks and conversely shame when you leave at 530 or 6 p.m., even though that's what's healthy. So what do you think about this dilemma in, in the corporate world? And was this sort of a factor in your deciding to, to leave and, and start your own business? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I talk a lot about this, even with just like inviting my colleagues to a dance show, you know, because I had this conflict of, whoa, if they know what I do outside of work, do I look like I'm not working hard enough? Right. If they knew that I was attending dance rehearsals to perform. Um, And so I think this struggle I've always had with dance and, you know, my professional career 
is sort of um, an example of everything anyone might have with like kids and family and work and vacation. It's constantly about figuring out what matters to you. But I have learned when you are confident about it, no one will question it. It's when you ask for permission that mm-hmm. people are like, wait, I, should I be saying no to you? It is. And you know, you, you have to know what you're doing. Well, obviously if you do your work well, what is anyone ever going to say to you? You know? So, to, you know, to me, like I have lived by the mantra and the principle of like, if I say yes to you, I'm going to do it at 150% or I'm not going to do it. Right. And I think that applies to work and what you can do as well. Um, and obviously that comes because you have to be passionate about it, which, you know, is sometimes hard I get if you're not in a, in a job that you completely love, but you have to protect your own time. And sometimes when you're in that jam and you're stuck sort of in that day to day, in order to move forward, right? And once again, I'm thinking maybe it's in a year out to be inspired for something new. If you don't take care of yourself, you will never have enough like iterations in yourself and in your mind to be inspired and enlightened enough to even maybe quit in two years, right? If that's even where you want to get to, um, you will stick with the grind. And by the way, if that's what you want to do in life, that is completely okay too. Like, I think that's always important for people to know too, is it's other people's success doesn't have to be yours. And you might be like, I live and I work because I want my family to be provided for. And like, that is some people's mission in life. Like that was my parents' mission in life. And that was their duty. And I 100% respect that, right? It's all about what you're being driven by. Are you being driven by fear? So back to what you were saying, is it, I'm not doing that because I'm scared. It is important to know that when you're reacting out of fear versus reacting out of love or passion, right? It is, I want to go and pick up my kid from school because I love my kid. Why should you ever feel bad about that? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I love that you said uh, at the beginning. You said you have to you have to protect your time. At the end of the day, you know, if you're at a, at a corporate job, if you work at a financial institution, if you work in a management consulting firm or a law firm, um, your supervisors aren't necessarily you know uh, concerning themselves with what's you know what's pile what's what you know, what's Ricky, Ricky's career going to look like in 20, 30 years. So you have to ultimately be be, be responsible for that. And that's why I, I love that you included in your life path section um, a, a note on the importance of saying no and. I'm wondering if like, if people listening in their personal lives or in their professional lives, are there ways that they can practice saying no? Are there situations where they, they, you know, should push themselves and try to assert themselves not to do things that they otherwise might've felt obligated to do? I mean, the best way to start, and I've had this practice for a very long time is, you know, on Sunday nights, I have a doc, it's called Piles Weekly Priorities. And I go through and I have all my priorities, whether they're like professional things, creative things, home things. And I go through that first and then I look at my calendar and literally there's always things on there where I'm like, I don't have time for this. I got to call, you know, I'm just going to cancel this and say no to it. And I have stopped feeling bad about that because I have to move forward and I need to be able to accomplish the things I want to accomplish. And by the way, I'm actually not going to be a great person to have lunch with if I'm not really invested in wanting to be there too. And I've realized that too, is like, I want to be fully present when I'm at some meeting or some, you know, interaction with another human being. And so I think that's the other way to think about it is don't just make it, don't just check mark it, make it serve, you know, what your broader purpose is and for the other person as well. But look at your calendar and start taking things off. You know, I think that's like a, a great way to start, like cancel a meeting or say no to a friend you don't need to see. Yeah. So, so it sounds like you're, you're justifying 
Uh, you're saying in certain situations, people can be a little selfish, right? Like you don't have to live going back to expectations. You don't have to live your life for other people. You don't have to go to a, a lunch or a coffee with a friend because you think they want to see you or, or, you know, you feel a sense of obligation or, or duty to them. You should say, all right, I've had a rough week. I, I, I can really use a me day, um, you know, prioritize my own mental health, my own wellness. Uh, maybe, maybe, you know, hopefully your friends and your family will understand if you say no to those things. Absolutely. And, you know, at the core of it, like, you know, I even, I struggle with the word selfish too, just because I even think about it. Like I need to make sure I'm okay to be able to give to the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you really think about it in the sense of like, I would have never been able to create a company like ClassPass, which I know has changed a lot of people's lives if I didn't take care of myself. right? Right. And so I know it's like, it's in this way, you have to think about it as what am I doing to be able to enable myself to unleash myself for the service I am put on earth to do, right? Instead of the every inner everyday interactions that everyone's sort of obliging you to. And so if you start thinking about it like that, because I know the word selfish is hard to hear for anyone, right? No one wants yeah. to be like, oh, I'm being selfish, but I would take out the word guilt and I would take out the word selfish and make it about how am I positioning myself, my mind, my body, my emotions to be in a place where I can serve the world, you know, in the best way I can. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, no, I, I totally agree with that. Um, something that I, I really identified with in the book, uh, one of the common threads was the sort of the importance of your identity in your evolution uh, and how your identity was never one singular thing. It wasn't that you were just Indian, you were Indian and American, you know, you weren't just a dancer, you were a dancer and a businesswoman. So I'm curious, why do you think, Pyle, in, in you know, the professional world and, and in the personal world as well, people have a tendency to get boxed into these singular identities? It's just easier for the world, right, to make sense of something, right? We, we can only process so much information with our minds. And so that's what just happens, right? People are quickly labeled and quickly, you know, put into a box because it's the easiest way for other humans to kind of understand, right? The best way against that is obviously education and seeing more diversity and seeing more representation because you realize that things have so many different threads to them, right? And I think what I have always thought of in my way, whether it was, you know, my Indian American identity or even, you know, being a business and a creative is bringing all of those strands together wherever I could, even though in the beginning, I think I was shy in doing that. Like I talk a lot about how, how much I separated all those parts of my life. Like I literally had like my Indian friends and then my American friends and they never saw each other. I do remember by the time, like I graduated, like there were like Indian parties. I would take my, like my school friends to yeah. and feeling like, wow, like this is great to have everyone in the same place. And obviously by the time I went to college, things um, started finally blending, but I think we all need to be able to bring all of the layers of who we are and threads of who we are into one place. And I think, you know, one of the things is obviously finding communities, right. That can help you understand the depths of all of your different layers, right. Who will accept you for all the different parts you are. Sometimes we shut down layers of who we are. Like there were times where I was like, I don't want to be Indian right in this, in this circle, because I'm going to look one way or another, or, Oh, like, are my investors going to think, um, I'm not smart if they know I'm a dancer. Like these are the things that went on in my mind. And over time, I was like, no, these are the things that make me exceptional. 
I need to show these. And so I, you know, I can literally tell you like every investor I've had in, in the company, every major investor has probably seen me dance at this point in my life, which is incredible. And I even have, um, you know, one of my main investors, and I talk about this in the book, like he's literally like, I invested in you because I saw you dance. And, yeah. you know, literally like if we go and meet people, he whips out like a YouTube video of me dancing. It'll be with like a huge like CEO of a company, but I'm like, great. Like you totally understand me. And once again, understand also what this company is about, which makes me so proud. And then, you know, if the Indian and American side, like over time, like I have really learned to celebrate both, you know, mostly through obviously the work I do on the art side and my dance, dance community. But I've really learned to say like, this is actually what makes me beautiful. And it is on me to share these different layers, right? And have that deeper understanding of my roots to share with people. But, you know, I think it's a journey for everyone. I think we constantly change. Like I became a mom and now I'm like dealing with like that, you know, label and what that feels like and the right. questions people ask you because of that. And you start to realize like it never really stops, you know? And so you have to have a very strong core on who you are. And when you face moments of adversity or point points where you don't fit in, you just need to remember that clear, that clear inside part of you. So you have the confidence, like confidence is everything, right? When people, people always ask me like, how, how was it being a woman in tech? Right? Like, I mean, yeah, I was one of the few women who was ever in so many of the rooms I was in. And I remember not ever feeling like, oh, I don't belong. Because by then I remember building this sense of confidence and sort of like this armor of, no, I'm incredible because of all these different things. And actually all these different things make me the perfect person to build this company. There is no one else who has this combination of traits that would probably be able to tackle this problem and build something. And when you start to think of it like that, I just think, you know, it changes for you and it changes how people begin to perceive you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I actually think you, you struck on something interesting in the book that a lot of people can identify with when you talk about how a lot of us have these multiple identities that you're speaking about. And I think I think for most people who do compartmentalize, they're one person at work, they're another yeah. person with their friends, another person with their family. I mean, I can speak from personal experience working at several different firms like I almost have a tendency, and, and I, I bet you can relate to this as well. I have a tendency to like rein in my personality in the workplace. So if if you know if I meet people when I'm out or you know in social settings, I come across as as very lively and, and goofy and, and lighthearted. But if you worked with me seven years ago in 2014, you would know that, right? I might come off as uh, more serious in the workplace. Right. So I wonder, like, and and I I do think a lot of people listening are probably shaking their head, like, oh, that's that kind of sounds like me. So I wonder. You mentioned a moment ago. You said I think that the 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 responsibility is on me, is on you for disclosing that parts of our those parts of our identities. I wonder, just to kind of push back a little, is the responsibility also on um, people at work to ask questions and to show an interest and things like that. Uh, what do you think about about those those competing ideas? No, I mean, I think it's the fact, you know, and I think about this, the amount of people who showed up to my dance show when I invited my office to it, like yeah. it's their interest in being able to to want to come. And you're right. It is on everyone to ask you also, like as a leader, I have learned this after, you know, having all the employees I've had, like I want to know what's going on in your life outside of work. By the way, you are not going to be able to give me 150% at work. If like there is other stuff going on in your life, please let me know what's going on. And I think, you know, it's that humanness that we all need, especially in the workplace that really makes like teams fun working with. Like, how do you become friends? Like it's because you actually know what's going on in people's lives. Right. And I think, you know, as a leader, 
I have 100% done that. I have always invited my entire team to my performances or like, you know, like I remember when I started dating my husband, he would come to work. Like I wanted to be very open about like life is nor is the same for everyone. Like everyone has a lot of the same challenges. Why are we only bringing a certain set of challenges and problems of what we're going through or a certain part of, part of our life to work? Because it is so important to bring all of it. And I think it comes very much down from the leadership. You know, I've, I've learned that over time. It's, it's um, you know, top down in terms of how you set culture in so many of these organizations, you know, but I agree, like everyone does have a right to do that and have it. But it's not there. And I would say to you, if you feel like you're in a job where you're really, really in a place where you can't be yourself, like as much as obviously skill and the job you have matters, the people you work for matters tremendously in your happiness. And I think we sometimes forget to think about that one. And if you're in a job where you truly can't be yourself, like it is time to potentially find a new environment. And I think people also don't realize like that's a criteria. And when you're looking for a job, because obviously there's like other things to check, check, the box for, but when you are thriving in an environment, you'd be surprised. Right. And I think you just said it, like there's probably a job you had back in the day where you're like, no one would have thought you were going to be this person. I mean, there are probably jobs I've had where people are probably like, how did this girl go and build like this huge company? Right. Because I was definitely not showing all sides of me, but I also wasn't in the right environment. And so it's about you knowing what that environment is that's going to enable you to thrive. And that's why, you know, and I realized that too, there are certain things where I'm like, I don't want to do that because I don't want to be in that environment anymore. It's just, it's not what I want to do. It's not where I feel the most comfortable and that's completely okay. And I think sort of to, to, to put these ideas into practice, a potential litmus test might be to do pile what you did, like sort of extend an invitation to someone and see how they react, right? Like if in your case, you invited um, your coworkers to your dance performance, you write about in the book, how afterwards you detected a change in how they viewed you and they were more understanding and they showed an interest. And, you know, maybe if, uh, I mean, in my case, I, I obviously host the podcast and, or, you know, if, if you um, are a member of like an improv troupe or you sing or something, maybe potentially like, like speak to people about that, invite them, and then see if they're receptive, see if they, you know, and if they're not, to your point, Pyle, maybe that's not the right place for you, or maybe that's not the right people for you to be spending your time with. Yeah, especially if those things are important to you, right? So it comes down to, you know, whether it's, there's certain places where like, everyone's all about work and family, and that's great if that's what you want, right? But if it's work and hobbies, like find people who are into like into hobbies and stuff where you're going to feel stifled. Right. And I completely agree with you. It's about, you know, constantly trying to assess and being able to put things out there. And, and it's, it's definitely a two-way thing. Yeah. I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, And I do think this is why what's, what's kind of interesting is management and leadership should, you know, realize, and this is applicable for all industries, the more you take time to connect with people and, and learn about their identities, the more motivated they are to put, put forth their best effort, the more loyalty they feel towards the company. So it's almost like making space for that, for, for letting people be themselves and, you know, spending a few minutes to talk about your weekend or, you know, what, what movie you saw, or whatever ends up benefiting the company. So I, I guess for people listening, it's, I think that's an important thing to take note of. I, I want to uh, talk through your, your experience sort of as an entrepreneur starting class pass and, and growing it into one of the most influential fitness companies in the world. Cause obviously this isn't something that happened overnight. And you, you talk about in the book, um, before you created ClassPass, you were searching for potential business ideas. You, you mentioned a, a red-eye flight from California to New York, and you set a goal for yourself, two weeks to come up with an idea for something you, you're passionate about. So what prompted this? So once again, I was 
sitting at my desk and I was living two identities back to what we were just talking about. I literally was this like incredible dancer by night and had this day job where I felt unfulfilled. And I was getting to that point where I couldn't sort of do both identities fully once again. And I had already been there when I was at Bain, but I kind of reached this point second time now in my life. And I decided to try something new. And I usually never traveled because I was always busy dancing and all these things. But one of my good friends, it was her birthday, decided to fly out to San Francisco and change pace and change a little bit of the conversation I was around. Everyone at her party was like building apps and building product ideas. And it was such a different mentality to the conversations I was having in New York City at the time. And I started thinking, wow, like I'm creative and I know how to lead. I've I've gotten things done. I have a good background. Like, what if I can think of an idea? And in my mind, and everyone always asked me this, they're like, well, what if you didn't come up with an idea, right? In those two weeks. And I think for me, this was like a test. It was, can I think of an idea? And if I do like, great, maybe I'm meant to be an entrepreneur or like, I need to find a career change, right? Like I also was very okay with being able to understand that, like, maybe I need to find a job in the arts or something else, like something else that was going to be more fulfilling. I, I kept that all on the table. And, you know, I just got, no, I'm not going to say lucky. I think the universe, obviously, like with all my background and all of that put me in this place where um, I was open to getting an idea and I was living my life, right? Like in the way I normally would. So I was going to ballet classes and I was literally living the ethos of what, you know, class that sort of is sort of without it. And I hit a problem, right? And I hit a problem that I thought needed to be solved. And I felt like I was the perfect person with my combination of skills and um, background to do it. And I knew I was going to be really passionate about it. Obviously it started with like this one moment and the product idea was different and it evolved, but the impetus of me wanting to solve a problem was the most important thing. And I think, you know, the best entrepreneurs out there start by wanting to solve a problem in the world and don't stop until they've solved it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's less about a product idea or a business model. It is really about solving a problem in the world. And that's really what I was faced with two days after that red eye flight. So I'm curious, had you not stumbled onto, or not stumbled, but, uh, you know, constructively formulated the concept of class pass, were there other problems that you were wrestling with? Were there other potential business ventures that you didn't explore like plan B's plan C's, so to speak, or was it always, Uh always class pass for you? Um, no, actually. So I was like looking, it was less about starting another company because I, that's, like I said, I was kind of at a place where I was like looking for a career change. Um, I was thinking of potentially like going to work in the arts. So I was like meeting people at Lincoln center and, um, other arts venues to see if I wanted to pursue the arts and do something more in business there. And then, um, I also was talking to, I knew Daniel Eck from Spotify really well. So I was like potentially going to go help them with their opening their New York office at the time. So it was crazy. Like the options of plan A and plan B's were out there. And I think, you know, I talk a lot about this in my book too. I almost like took a job at Spotify. Like I almost did that even after I had the idea of class pass. Um, and once again, it was a different idea back then, but I still wasn't fully sure and didn't know how to quit my job and have no income. Right. Like that's a really hard place to be. And it took me this conversation, which I talk about in the book too, where my, um, one of my good advisors and, you know, now, now one of my closest friends, um, she was like, pile, like, why would you not bet on yourself? Like, how is anyone else going to bet on you? If you're not willing to bet on yourself with this idea. And that's when I was like, oh, I am not taking this other job and I'm going for my own dreams and vision. Right. But it's so much, it's so easy to sort of have a plan B, which 
never allows you to live your plan A. Yeah, I, I think I think that's helpful for people who who might be sort of you know not betting on themselves, who who might have sort of a, a first plan and then a fallback option that that kind of prevents them from being all in. Uh, I, I do like the the idea of setting a, a two week a hard deadline for yourself, and I'm wondering for people listening who uh, might be stuck at a job and, and mulling over being an entrepreneur, do you think that imposing these these you know personal deadlines of you have two weeks to do X, do you think that could push someone to to do something like start their own business? Yeah. I mean, I think what it really does is it maps, once again, your brain power of where you are in that time to maximize its sort of like attention towards solving something. Right. So if you're like, I need to get out of a career, like you're working all day and you probably have other stuff you're doing at night. Like how much time are you really dedicating towards solving that problem? What that just did, it was, it gave my brain sort of a goal to compact during that time to sort of look for inspiration in that way. I think it's a great way to start, right? And if you don't time box it, it becomes a forever journey of being able to say, when can I get started? Like there are thousands of ideas out there and there's probably lots of things you could be passionate about. But if you kind of don't time box it, then it becomes like a forever thing. And I think I, I do this a lot in the life pass method with the goal setting. Like I'm, I'm very goal oriented in that way because it gives me a cutoff and it gives me a chance to reevaluate and then move, move forward and reassess my life and iterate and pivot the way, whichever way I need to, based on the information I learned. Yeah, I definitely think that that this concept of uh, time boxing, as you call it, is is helpful because otherwise, I'm sure there there are a lot of things that um, for you and for people listening have have been wanting to do, but you know, life happens and and you get busy with with minutia of day to day, and unless you you put it down on paper, there's this book, write it down, make it happen. Unless you add it to your to do list, you put it on on a post it note, um, you you know, prescribe a specific day and time. It's just gonna fall by the wayside, and ten years later, you know, you might have missed the opportunity to do that. So, so I think that that was a really helpful um, uh, uh, sort of piece of advice. And you also talk about being vigilant of false signals of success when building a business. So for people who, who haven't read the book yet, what did, what did you mean by that? So when you're building a company, and honestly, this is in our lives too we tend to forget what success really means, right? So early days of ClassPass, I thought it was because I had raised some money because like we ended up on the cover of Inc. Magazine, like we got into a tech incubator, like all these things would, you know, make you think you're succeeding, right? Because they're great, right? Like I, we had followers, all of that. What we didn't have when we launched was anyone who went to class and any money. Now that's a problem, right? So we sort of forgot to think about what success was, right? And a lot of times it's, when do I get to 10,000 customers or whatever these numbers were? Like I needed to book one class, like literally getting that first reservation and people don't realize this, like took me three years, right? And it was the hardest thing and it was the most rewarding thing. Like when that first person went to class, like the amount of joy I had reminded me. And like, like I said, it was the only thing that mattered and none of the other smoke and other things had any impact on, on our success. The only thing that mattered was getting somebody to class. And it's easy to forget that. Right. And even in our own lives, when we think about, um, you know, I, and I think with like new year's coming up and I have my whole goal setting method that I do every quarter, we tend to think that these big things like, Oh, I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to get a promotion. 
are like the huge things that we need to go through where we forget. It's like sometimes the little meaningful things that are actually the most important in getting us to ultimately to where we want to go, whatever that true North for you might be, but it's the same thing for a company, you know? And so um, I had to learn that the hard way, but once I learned that lesson, I think, you know, that's really why I think, you know, ClassPass has been able to really stick towards what it's always done, which was like the reservation number at our company was always paramount because it was getting people to class. Without that, what is our product doing? Nothing. You know, there's no engagement there and there's no revenue. There's nothing happening for our teachers. And I think about for everyone, it's about really figuring out, um, you know, what that true North is, what that metric might be, and then not getting, uh, you know, into the false signals of success, which is like based on society's expectations of what you should be doing. For sure. So it sounds like one of the one of the uh, chief struggles that you dealt with was actually building, um, actually getting numbers in, in the reservations uh, system. You also talked about in the book, uh, sort of the the entrepreneurial journey and how lonely it was. And I actually appreciated this just because of how how different it was. I mean, there, there's so many books that are written about uh, the importance of resilience and grit and coping with adversity. But what I've never heard from a book uh, from from an entrepreneur or founder is just how lonely it is starting a company from the ground up and you know facing these challenges and overcoming them. So can you share what what that was like and and you know how you grappled with that? Yeah. You know, and I think, um, one of the hardest parts, and by the way, like I had, you know, a great co-founder through the beginning and I always feel like, you know, doing this stuff alone is really hard. But I think at the end of the day, when you're the CEO, like there is a sense of, um, just a feeling of pressure and responsibility that like you have to, you know, whether it's like I said, board investors, and then to your team, um, and then the mission. Right. And I think all those things, um, can feel really, really, lonely at times. And you need to be able to have the emotions to be able to deal with it. I think I talk a lot about, um, and I, I, I talk about this experience where I literally got mason mugged, uh, in the middle of, you know, of a coffee shop, uh, when I was starting the company and I kind of wanted to like hide my emotions, you know? And I think going back to what you were saying, it's, it's our emotions that make us human. And I think when we are able to to deal with that. It also makes us like more empathetic as leaders, as creators, um, especially when you're building a consumer app uh, and thinking about how people feel. And I think I really needed to come to terms with the way I was feeling in order to also be able to figure out what I needed to be able to succeed, right? If you are feeling lonely, it's like, what do you need to be able to get to the other side of this? Because the feeling of loneliness can be stifling so much so that you can take you off of you know, your path, right? So it's really about how do I get out of this, this state of loneliness to be able to move forward? Right. And, and, and part of what, what you did, and I think what a lot of uh, entrepreneurs do is you build a network of, of advisors or mentors. Um, you mentioned in the book how, you know, you would, you would try to meet with uh, other accomplished folks like Cyrus uh, Masumi, who was re- building ZocDoc. And I know that, you know, if you ever read like Elon Musk biography, he talked about how him and his brother would open the phone book and they would dial up business leaders and try to take them out to lunch. And if one out of 200 respond, then that could be a potential connection. So I'm wondering in today's day and age of social media, when, you know, there's infinite ways to actually send a message, um, but, you know, you have, you're in a sea of millions of people who are sending these messages. How can, can people stand out to actually build those connections? It's all about who connects you. Like it's about finding a friend who can connect you to another friend that people know. People will always 
more likely talk to somebody and in like a heartwarming way, if the connection is a warm connection versus like a cold call, um, obviously you can cold call and go for it. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that that doesn't work. Um, I think when you can use your network and a lot of people are like, oh, well, like I, there's no way I can get to the like X person, you know? I think you people forget, like even in the five friends they have, like meet somebody who that who they know, you know, and it's not always about finding the person who is like, you know, this untouchable person that is like so high up in their industry that everyone wants to meet. You don't realize like a mentor is literally just somebody who is even a little bit more experienced than you in the field you're at. Right. And if you can find that person at work or through a friend I guarantee that person will then open doors for you in another way. And that happened to me so many times. And it wasn't always the people I thought were going to always help me on my journey, but I asked and I, you know, once again, I got a warm introduction. I think like people forget how important introductions are and the way they are done is everything. So I, I, I love, I love the idea of rather than cold calling and initiating the conversation, sort of having a softer open relying on someone, you know, um, and this might sound a little cynical or skeptical of me, but I'm wondering in in the from the mentor's perspective, sort of like what do they get out of it, right? You talk in the book about how mentor relationships take the care and attention of both people and develop naturally over time, and each person needs to feel like they're receiving value. So if there's this uh, venture capitalist or you know this this investor angel investor who um, is already extremely successful, what might they get out of taking a personal interest in in in, in you, Pyle? Well, the best way to get to an investor is finding a CEO who they've invested in, who's done well. That's the best way, right? So it's actually about finding a founder, right? Who probably is more likely to talk to you, by the way, anyway, because founders like to talk to founders. It's just mm -hmm. the way it goes, right? So that's really the way in. It's like the, until you go to an investor and the investor is used to what? Everyone asking them for money, right? Like that is their job. Um, so you have to either find a way in and the best way is to have someone they trust, right? Another CEO who's hopefully like done well for them say, hey, I'd like for you to meet Ricky because Ricky has done really well or here, here's Pyle, right? Because I've been working with her or I've spoken to her. I see some progress. I like, like her vision. Can you do a call with her? And now they're like, oh, okay. Like this person I respect is recommending this person. I'll take the 30 minute call. If you don't go in that way to an investor, it's very unlikely unless they like kind of bump into you once again, like at a conference or whatever. And look, like I said, those happen. I'm, I'm just telling you what I feel like I know is like 85 to 90% of the way that most of the introductions happen in mm -hmm. that world. So, I mean, I, I guess it makes sense for for adventurers who are uh, investors who are sort of financially motivated to take an interest in potentially, you know, uh, getting some equity in your company or, or, or something along those lines. But for let's yeah. say some let's say someone who isn't interested in investing, yeah. someone who like like I don't know if there's someone who um, inspires you, who you just want to have lunch with, sort of like what what from their perspective, what do they get out of, out of that relationship? Or how can you structure the ask such that it's, it's a valuable uh, investment of their time? So first of all, I would make sure you do the research on whoever you're meeting with. Right. So, you know, I, and I know this for myself, right? Like when people come and ask me now for mentorship or advisory, it's don't ask me anything that, you know, you could read like on the internet, right? Like it's, it's one of those things. And I've wow. always felt most passionate about helping people who literally are vulnerable to me, right? About something that I feel like is so different, like whether it's like something about like, you know, struggling with like life and, and founderhood, you know, or motherhood and founderhood, or, hey, like I'm having issues with my co-founder, like just stuff that you're like, 
I can help you with this because of my experience. And it's really real versus you coming up to me and just telling me like how awesome you are, because that makes me feel like, how do I help you if you're already so incredible? Right. If that makes sense. And I think a lot of times that's what a mentor wants. They want to be able to help you. Right. And it's about finding you know, the problem, they obviously have to see the talent in you and see like all of that. So it's important to come that, but I think the authenticity is really what makes it, I think for a lot of mentorship relationships. And it's like, you know, it's like any relationship in your life, like dating, like some people work together well, and some people don't, you know, and I think people have to give it that chance to sort of build, but like the same way you meet somebody you might date or a friend, like it starts with authenticity, and, and something real, it doesn't sort of start because two people put you together and then, you know, you're going to have to just talk every week because of that. It won't last if that's the basis to it. Yeah. And I think to kind of bring our conversation back to what we were talking about before about not compartmentalizing your identity, uh, I would, I would probably think that, you know, approaching a mentor with your authentic, natural self, um, all aspects of your multiple identities, as opposed to just being the person that they inspect you, you, you know, instead of, as opposed to being just the business person, showing them that you have other interests and that you have, you know, personality and, and, and things like that would, would also probably benefit you in, in, in that context. 100%. Like you said, it's, it's, they want to be able to help you, but they need to understand you in order to help you. And I think we forget that, you know, that's really what a mentor is there for. They're there to help you and coach you through different parts of your journey and your life. So they need to be able to truly connect with either the struggles you're having to be like, oh, I've had those too. I know I can help you through that. And sometimes they're not as, you know, like they're not things you necessarily read in a book because then they're like, I don't need to help you. Yeah. Like if someone asks a question, just to ask a question when it's like, you can just sort of, if, if you want to know the answer to like uh, a question about like a series A, series B funny, they can just kind of look it up. I think, yeah. I, think I think that's, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and kind of, you know, going back to what we were talking about before with protecting your time and, and making sure you're prioritizing your well-being. Uh, recently, or, you know, in the last year or two, you made the decision to uh, step down as CEO and assume the role of, of chairman as, as ClassPass. Uh, and, and I think in doing so, that was an amazing signal to the world that you make decisions based on what's best for yourself rather than what people expect you to do. But was that part of your calculus pile? Kind of what went into that decision? Yeah. I mean, look, I think if you look at my life every three, four years, I've made a huge decision that society sort of didn't expect me to make, whether that was like from Bain to Warner, Warner to starting ClassPass, ClassPass to like all the iterations and pivots to, you know, even, and we just recently even sold the company, you know? So I think it's one of those things where you have to lead your career. No one else can lead it for you. And it did get harder because like I was more like in the spotlight and there was a lot of attention on female founders. And I, you know, I talk a little bit about this in the book. Like one of my biggest fears was I never want anyone else to think that they shouldn't be a CEO. But I was like, this is not what I ever wanted. Like that was never what I grew up wanting like when I was younger, right? And so I think it's about knowing yourself well enough to say what's the right career path for you? What's the right role for you? Most importantly, how do you want to be spending your time every day? And for you, I mean, you're, you know, you're a dancer and a full-time management consultant, and now you're a business leader, an author, a mother, you mentioned uh, in the media spotlight. How do you, you know, make the most out of the limited number of hours you have in the day? Oh my God. I, I mean, if someone saw the way I schedule and calendar, like it, that's really the art of it. And I talk about that, the art of scheduling, like I am very clear on what I want to get done. And I plan my time around that. And I'm, you know, very, very, 
protective of it, especially now I have a, I have a 22 month old son. Um, and I also like want to make sure I have quality time with him, but at the same time I'm ambitious and that's not going to go away. So I just have to make sure I use my time extremely well. And look, everything doesn't always go to plan and that's fine. And I think like that's part of, of the art of it is it moves around and it's not perfect, but I always am very clear about what I want to do. And you still make time for a class pass sessions once a week or so. I mean, that, you know, that is a part of my being like, that is a part of, I mean, I work out every single day and like, it is something that I don't feel bad about. Like my husband knows, right. It's like Saturday morning. I'll be like, okay, are you going to go for a run? Like I'll take the baby. It's like, I, you just have to have a contract with yourself that you have a contract with everyone. Right. And this kind of goes back to the earlier question. Like if you don't question it and people, people know how important it is to you, they'll enable you to do it versus fight you in doing it. Yeah. In the book, you talk about how the first thing that people uh, negotiate in their schedule is sleep. And and the second thing is probably fitness. I, I can I can talk about, you know, for myself, usually if, if I have to meet me to an impending deadline, the first thing I'll do is pull a late night and then maybe I'll skip the gym. And that's probably probably not the best idea for mental or, or physical health. I just think that when you can operate at a better productivity level all day, it's better than, you know, being at 50% all day. And I, I just truly believe that. Like I, it's all about getting better, better quality time and everything that I can do, which requires sleep. And even for me, it requires just mentally working out because it, it shifts me the second I can, I can work out. Totally agree. Otherwise you're, you're just, I mean, you're not being productive if you're, I just, I feel like I'm either waiting to work out or I'm just operating at a little bit of a lower, like lower speed. And why do that? (laughs) For sure. For sure. We've covered so many different topics today. If there's one thing that you want listeners to take away from our conversation, what would that be? The most important thing is say yes to the things that are meaningful to you and let the no's fall away. Say yes to the things that are meaningful to you and, and let the no's fall away. I love that. To everyone listening, you can purchase Pyle's book, Life Pass, Develop the Mindset, Techniques, and Goals to Optimize Your Life on Amazon or anywhere that books are sold. I'm sure listeners want to know where they can go to follow you on Instagram or, or Twitter. Yeah, where um, at Pyle. At Pyle? Awesome, awesome. I'm so happy for all of your success. Uh, you, you know, I'll be rooting for you in Class Pass moving forward and looking forward to, to connecting soon. Thanks so much, Ricky. This is great. There you have it, guys. That was my conversation with Pyle Kadakia. Um, there are a lot of you know really interesting takeaways from our chat and from uh, you know from looking at the book. And one of the the most important ones, as you can hear, Penny squeaking her uh, squeaking her her teddy bear in the background. <laughs> I try to try to take them away when I'm recording. But um, what, you know, one of the one of the more interesting questions that I was faced with, and and Pyle talks about this a lot in the book, is the question of you know, are you living your plan A or are you living your plan B? You know, are you doing w- what you love? Are you, you know, if you think about all of the possible realities, all the possible careers, the, the paths that you could have taken, is this really your plan A? Or if it is your plan B, if this is just you know a job or a career that's um, you found yourself in as a result of going to school for something that you thought you liked, or you know, getting a job to pay the bills and then flash forward a couple of years and, and you're still at the same spot. Like whatever the, the circumstances are, if you're living your plan B, you know, what's holding you back from plan A? And I think Pyle's journey was, is actually kind of, uh, you know, it, it isn't atypical today. I think there are a lot of people out there who have financial freedom, whether that mean 
whether that means they purchased property that they're um, receiving monthly rent payments on, or you know, maybe I'm sure you, ha- you guys have friends who are investing in cryptocurrency or the stock market um, or futures and options trading. And by doing that, they're able to generate income and then finance their lifestyle, right? Like when you have financial freedom, we've talked about it so much on the pod, um, you can afford to pay rent and to you know, uh, pursue your entrepreneurial endeavors because you have money coming in elsewhere. And you saw that with with Pyle and, you know, being able to leave the corporate world, Bain and, and Warner Bros. It's really about taking the leap, right? And and I, I've shared this story in the pod before, um, but I'll, I'll sort of like briefly, you know, go through it with, with new listeners. Back in 2017, I was at, I was at a job that was pretty unfulfilling that I, I didn't feel like I could be my best self. I felt like oh, oh, exactly like we're, what we're saying. I felt like I was concealing my identity. Um, I felt stifled. Uh, I didn't feel like I was, uh, you know, I was comfortable or, or relaxed or natural. I felt like, you know, I felt like I was just one person at home and with my friends and another person at work. And there's other stuff on top of that. Like I didn't really see uh, a path forward for myself at my job. I didn't feel like, you know, it could go anywhere and, and and there are other there are other sort of dimensions there, but I felt this way for a long time, and it was to the point where like Sunday nights I would lie awake in bed, just literally dreading going back to work the next week, and I, I stayed with that job for a while. You know, I think I felt that way for a couple months before I I ended up making any any sort of change, and I eventually I decided to to leave that job. Um, and it wasn't just the fact that the job itself wasn't satisfying; it was also that. I was 25 and I felt like, um, and I, I call it my quarter life crisis, but I felt like there were so many paths in life that I wanted to explore, right? Like I, I'd always wanted to try to be an actor and I'd always wanted to try comedy and I wanted to figure out if I was going to go to graduate school or law school. And, you know, Pyle made the point during the episode, she said, people are, when people are so bogged down in the day to day of their job, they don't give them, give, give themselves time to reflect on their overall career, right? They can't see the forest from the trees. And I was procrastinating making these big picture, um, you know, decisions about my life and my career. And so I quit the job and I decided to, to you know, try my hand at, at some of these things that I'm talking about. And it was scary. Like I didn't, I didn't have a lot of money saved up. Um, I had some from, from my previous job working as a, a paralegal. Um, but rent in New York's expensive. And to pay rent for six, seven months without income, I mean, it, it was really challenging. And, you know, I, I don't know that my parents were terribly thrilled with my decision. Um, and I don't know, I don't know that a lot of people understood it. You know, when, when I left this job, uh, I, I shared with my boss, you know, it was sort of like, I told him I was leaving, I, you know, I was going in a different direction, in my career, or whatever. And I think that, you know, they were pretty understanding. But, but the question was then like, okay, well, where are you going? What do you do instead? And I had to find a way to communicate like nothing. I'm just sort of going out, going on my own. Um, but all this to say, like, I, yeah, it was hard, like, like not having income for a while. I ended up having to take odd jobs. Like, I tried to um, go back into food service. Uh, and by the way, those jobs are competitive, too, in New York. If you want to, if you, if you just want to be, like, a waiter or a, a bar back or bartender or something, like, those are hard, those are hard jobs to get. But I ended up doing, like, um, part-time finance consulting and um, event planning, like, and, and those are jobs I've talked about before, and I'll probably talk about in the future. But yeah, it lasted a while, and I ultimately, I, I eventually did get to try my hand with like an, a very abbreviated <laughs> career in like amateur film acting, and then um, you know, did some some indie films and short film projects. Nothing, 
nothing significant. And uh, and I did get to do open mics and character nights and impression nights and a couple of different stand-up bits and, and things like that. And I'm really grateful that that I took the plunge, right, in, um, in trying those things. And, and this is a little bit different than going out and starting your business. Um, and also, like, the experiences I had, like, they, they weren't tremendously successful. It's not like, like in my conversation with Pyle, you heard from the first woman of color who founded a, a unicorn company, a, a billion dollar, a startup valued a billion dollars. Like, like she's she was as successful as 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 it gets in in this context, in this space. So it's hard to equate. I mean, I I like when I when I took the plunge and tried this show business thing, it. You know, it, 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 obviously, I wasn't tremendously successful in that area. Otherwise, I wouldn't be um, finishing my JD and hosting this podcast. But I, or I mean, maybe I would be because who knows? Who knows if that was right for me? But all this to say, like, I, I'm, I'm glad I did that just so I could have had those experiences and and grow and and learn and figure out what I want to do. And and who knows? Like going back to New York, I might decide to to you know explore those those scenes again. Um, so. I don't. I I think that asking yourself like, what's the worst that could happen? That was something my my friend Jeremy asked me when I was like talking to him and you know asking like, oh, should I quit my job and and you know this and that. And it's like, what's the worst? And he, he would just say, what's the worst that could happen? You know, what are you afraid of? And I would say the worst that could happen is um, I'm unemployed and I uh, don't have any money. And he would be like, all right, and then what? Then I'd say, and then I would burn through my savings. And then he'd say, and then what? And I'd say, and then I'd have to get another job. And then he'd say, and then what? And then when you get to the root of it, you keep going down. It's like there's nothing, you know, the worst that you could happen, the worst that could happen is still better than than the status quo. It's still better than live, than being in an unfilling job that wasn't making me happy and that was filling me with dread and anxiety all the time. So just, I don't know, something to consider there. And then I also really related to the notion of, you know, living life for yourself rather than doing what others expect you to. And, and, you know, Pyle talked about doing what her parents wanted. And in many ways, like for me, I went to law school because um, I think that from a young age, that's what everyone expected of me. I remember when I was um, when I was a kid, like my third grade teacher said, like, oh, I can't remember if we went in the room and she guessed everyone's professions. Or I think it was like parent-teacher night. And she said, like, oh, maybe she said to my mom, like, oh, I think your son's going to be the president or something. And then I did mock trial and... My mom actually had told pretty much all of our family and friends that I was going to be a lawyer before I could walk. So I can just kind of identify with, with you know, making decisions based on others' expectations. Um, and then the, the other, maybe the most like salient takeaway um, from this whole episode, right, is this, this idea of showing your full self at your job. Um, like the fact that Pyle was able to meet was able to to get coworkers to come, to go to her dance shows and show investors videos of her performances and have them be have them be incredibly supportive and just make efforts to to learn more about her passion. Like I thought, I thought that was that's really cool. And I I haven't done this. Um, I've I meant, mentioned this briefly in the episode, but and, and I said this a moment ago. Like I I've had a tendency to hide parts of my identity at at work, and that's why people listening to this who've worked with me. Um, I don't think th- there are too many, but you know they might be surprised listening to you know hearing like my my opinions and my thoughts, and they might be like, oh my gosh, he's he's a personality. Like, <laughs> I I I think to some degree, like 
you know, there are coworkers I've had who who saw that side of me, especially working in, in big law in the corporate world. There's so many late nights where you're just, you know, you're putting together a binder or you're, you're doing research together, you're drafting a memo and you end up shooting the shit with, with your office mate or with whoever you're, you're tasked with on the case, whether that be another paralegal or um, a lawyer or a secretary or something. So I think some of my coworkers saw that side of me, but I really don't, don't know if many of my superiors have. And I think that if there's one thing for you to take away from this episode, and you know every episode I say that, but if there's one thing that, that I want you guys to be left with, it's, it's what Pyle said about like, if you're at a job where you don't feel like you can be yourself, you're not at the right job. And I agree with Pyle that ultimately the responsibility is on us to show people our full selves and see how they react. You know, and that doesn't mean um, if you're going through like a breakup and someone says, how's your weekend? Going into like, you know, going into excruciating detail about, um, you know, deeply personal aspects of your relationship. Um, and it doesn't mean oversharing, you know, details of, of what you do outside the office. But like if there's something that, that that's a big part of your identity, like for Pyle, that, that was like dance. Um, for me, that's you know my podcast and my love for baseball, for example. Um, the fact that I grew up with parrots, uh, I, you know, th- things like that. I think are so integral to my identity, and yet very few of my coworkers, very few people I, I've worked with, know those things about me. Um, so I take responsibility. Like, like, like I probably should have made more of an effort, you know. And 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 there are windows, there are opportunities. I, I mentioned a minute ago. How was your weekend? It's you know, anytime someone, it, it, it's it's easy to just kind of brush that off and say, yeah, I was fine, I was yours. And in a lot of contexts, if, if you know, the other person's busy or if there's, you know, it's just like uh, uh, passing in the hallways, like, it's totally acceptable to just say, you know, yeah, fine, whatever. But like, you know, once in a while, I think it's okay to, to let people in a little bit. Um, and then, as I said in my conversation with Pyle, then the onus is on them, right? Like, see how they react. Do they show interest? Do they say, oh, I want to listen to your podcast. Oh, I want to go to your dance show. Oh, can I see pictures of your birds? Um, then it's like, okay, maybe this is, you know, maybe I'm starting to shed my skin and I'm starting to, to be comfortable um, being my natural self. Or maybe they'll they'll be like, maybe they'll be dismissive. Like, oh, okay, cool, and just move on. Um, I also think that when you sort of display aspects of your identity and, and you create that environment, a lot of people will reciprocate. You know, you'll be surprised. People, you know, people will start saying, oh, wow, that's so interesting. I'm actually doing something really similar. My friend's doing something like that. Maybe I can put you in touch with them. Um, so you really never know. And so I think that's something that I'm really going to try to take to heart and, and you know, take with me um, at, at my next job. So I, I, I hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Pyle. Um, and it's really apparent from, from chatting with her, and I'm sure it's apparent to you guys as well, like just how she's been so successful. I think she has an incredible uh, mindset, a contagious positive attitude, and really like, like an overall magnetic um, personality. So I, I really hope you guys check out her book. Um, definitely, definitely worth the read. As always, have some really exciting content around the corner. So keep it locked here, wherever you're listening to this, for more Nervous Habits. Thanks so much for listening, guys. This has been another episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. You can follow the pod on social media, on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore. Search for full episodes and clips on YouTube. Just search Nervous Habits Podcast and write to the pod at Nervous Habits Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, if you're interested in coming up with an idea for a business or an entrepreneurial venture, try timeboxing. Give yourself two weeks to come up with something and see what happens. You never know. You just might come up with the next class pass. Take care and stay nervous.